This is episode 48 of Cinescope, and I'm the most famous person in all of Greece! Uh, I'm an action figure! Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Chris Linden to talk about one of our favorite films, Hercules. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. It was nice to revisit this film. I hadn't seen it in many years. Same for me as well, uh, and I'll talk about it here in a few minutes. This I have a very special connection to this movie. But before we dive into that, Chris, how about you reintroduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you do, where else we might know you from, all that kind of good stuff. Well, a lot of people know me as Disney Chris on social media. I have a website called DisneyChris.com which is home to the Disneyland Magical Audio Tour, and I have almost 1,400 audio tracks from Disneyland that you can listen to, and other features like my Disney Song of the Day and things of that nature. I also host a podcast uh, called Jiminy Crickets, a Disney-themed podcast. We cover Disney news Nostalgia, movies, theme parks, anything Disney. I also am pretty active on social media, and you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, and I'm just all over the place. Big Disney fan. I guess you could call me a Disney historian. I think that would probably be a pretty apt description of who you are. And following you on Twitter and Facebook especially, you really get a, a, a glimpse into the world of Disney that I don't think a lot of other people offer. So you get, like you said, the, the Disney song of a day. That's always fun because it's usually an older song that is very nostalgic if you're familiar with it or if you're not familiar with it is a, a great treat to explore for the first time. And then all sorts of Disney news and memorabilia and it's you're just a great person to follow if you're even remotely a fan of Disney. Well, thank you. And of course, you were on the show once previously, uh, back way yes. back in episode ten, when we talked about the classic Pinocchio. And uh, you know, we were we were going to talk about another classic this week. We were going to talk about Alice in Wonderland, but then yesterday, as of this recording, was the twentieth anniversary. Of Hercules, so I said, "Hey, Chris, I, maybe maybe sometime in the future we could talk Alice in Wonderland, but you know, let let's maybe revisit this one." And I'm glad you obliged, and I'm I'm certain we'll have you on again in the future to maybe revisit Alice. No problem. I'm happy to talk about Hercules. I enjoy this film. One more thing before we move on to our main discussion. I want to put the giveaway reminder here at the beginning of the episode this time, because there are a lot of people out there making it really easy for very few people to win this giveaway. So we are in the final month of the, the movie giveaway for Cinescope leading up to our one year anniversary. After this episode, we are only four episodes away. If you want the chance to win one or even two movies of your choice, any movie that we've talked about on the show all the way through episode 52, when we will announce the winner. If you want that, make sure to head over to iTunes and rate and review the show and or share the show and tag us so that I see your post. That means you have up to two entries if you choose one or the other or both. So there are three winners, one person winning two movies, the other two winning one movie apiece. So if you don't want to make it so easy for some other people, make sure you get in there in these final few weeks so that you can walk away with a new movie of your choice. That out of the way, I'm ready to talk about some Hercules. How about you, Chris? Indeed. Okay, well, this movie came out, as I said, on June 27th of 1997. It was directed by John Musker and Ron Clements, who together also directed for Disney The Great Mouse Detective, The Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Treasure Planet, 
The Princess and the Frog, and Moana. So these guys pretty much kick-started the Disney renaissance of the 1990s, starting with The Little Mermaid. And even today, they're, they're making a huge impact in the Disney world with films like Moana, which I saw last or earlier this year and I loved. It was written by the duo Clements and Musker, as well as with Donald McHenry, Bob Shaw, and Irene Meckie. The music is by Disney classic, Disney favorite Alan Menken, who composes scores and music for The Little Shop of Horrors, The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, both 1991 and 2017 versions, Newsies, Aladdin, Pocahontas, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Enchanted, and Tangled. And the lyrics this time are by David Zippel, who also wrote the lyrics for the next movie in the 1990s Disney lineup, Mulan with music by Matthew Wilder, and he also wrote the lyrics for Star-Spangled Man, which is the song that appears in Captain America, the first Avenger, which Alan Menken also composed. Now, the cast for this movie got several names to list. It stars Tate Donovan, Danny DeVito, James Woods, Susan Egan, Bobcat Goldthwaite, Matt Frewer, Rip Torn, Samantha Egger, Lilius White, Cheryl Freeman, Lashans, Roz Ryan, Venice Y. Thomas, Josh Keaton, Roger Bart, Frank Welker, Jim Cummings, and a special appearance by Charlton Heston. So let's go ahead and get started with it, Chris. What was your first experience with this movie? I saw the movie when it was first released. I had just recently graduated from college and I had moved out to Southern California and I was living uh, in the San Diego area and I was really excited to see this film because when it was in production, I was actually working at Walt Disney World in Florida for the Walt Disney World College Program. and. Uh, part of the college program, you have to attend a series of classes. And in one of the classes, they had some of the animators from uh, Walt Disney Animation come and talk to us. And they showed us some clips of Hercules when it was still in production. We were getting a very rare first-hand view of this uh, film before Pretty much anybody else outside the Disney studio had a chance to see it. And I was really excited about it uh, just from what I had seen in that class. They also showed us clips from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was just about to be released. And uh, so it was really, really exciting to talk to animators and learn their perspective and what went into creating Hercules. So by the time it came out, I was really excited to see it. And it didn't disappoint. I remember really enjoying it. And even though it's not really thought of as much as some of the other Disney Renaissance films, I would probably consider it my favorite Disney Renaissance film out of all of them, believe it or not. That's how much I liked it. I just like the whole vibe of it and the um, the music and the characters and the animation is top notch. I just really enjoyed it. I'm impressed that you're willing to admit so publicly that this is one of your favorite Disney Renaissance. Not that it's a bad film, but it it's definitely not the typical choice. You know, most people would lean towards Lion King or Beauty and the Beast or maybe even something like Aladdin or... I, I don't know, something along those lines. And I think it's great that you chose Hercules because it is such a unique offering from the Disney studios in that time. Right. It's definitely not nearly as traditional in its presentation. You have this Greek drama laid out in this hugely colorful way, framed with this gospel choir singing chorus. And it, it's just so such a unique approach. And so I'm really interested to hear you say that it's your favorite of that time period. I think that's very cool. And I don't think I can really argue with it because like I said, this is a movie that I have always had a very strong connection to. And that is because I was five years old when this movie came out. And this is the first movie that I have actual memories of seeing in the movie theater. It's my very first uh, movie theater memory experience. So for that reason, this movie has a very, very special place in my heart. I saw it with my grandmother at the time, and I actually remember sitting there in the theater, little five-year-old Chad, the scene when Hercules is diving after Meg in the River of Death, cheering for him. You can do it, Hercules. You can do it. I, I Out loud in the theater, this little five-year-old. I, I remember this. Uh, so it stands out as 
just something that's very important in the very early formation of my interest in movies and in Disney and in just this brand of storytelling. I wouldn't call this my favorite Disney film, but it's dear to my heart and revisiting it last night in its entirety for the first time in many years, like you said, was actually a pretty emotional experience just as I think back to my childhood and what this movie meant to me then and seeing it with my grandmother at such an early age and the just the the nostalgia tied with it and also just experiencing the story anew as an adult and really getting wrapped up in one the mythology and two just the the very archetypal in a good way very emotional story I also remembered while watching that I actually dressed as Hercules for a Halloween event or some sort of school program of some sort at an early age. So like I said, this movie made a big impact on me as a kid. The story itself isn't super unique. It's just basic archetypal hero's journey. And talking about Man of Steel on last episode, it's very much sort of the Greek mythological version of Superman. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody would really argue with you on that point. It's it's very much Superman-esque, but it's the charm that's brought to the screen here. It's the identity that comes from the package it's wrapped up in that make it stand out as such such a fun film. It's it's gorgeous. It's extremely colorful animation and the the style of the animation, the the actual lines and shapes of everything is very reminiscent of sort of the stereotypical Greek artwork from that time and place at least what we see on like pottery and museums and stuff like that maybe maybe not exactly what was depicted on those vases also long ago but in the public consciousness when you think greek it's very much sort of what you see in this film as far as character design goes yes it has sort of a an architectural look to it the characters do especially their hair it's got a lot of um, curls that are stylized that remind me of Greek columns and, and things like that. The, the way the clothing is draped reminds me of Greek statues. They're definitely trying to um, channel, you know, Greek art through this film, you know, classic Greek art. Another interesting thing about the story is that, uh, as Disney is wont to do, very often, they definitely took some liberties with the original Greek myth of Hercules in that instead of having uh, Hercules be the illegitimate son of Zeus who had an affair with a human being, which is why Hercules was only a demigod, so he had the strength of a god, but he was a human. Instead, in this story, they opted to leave out the adultery <laughs> Because <laughs> it is a children's film. Probably a good choice. <laughs> and they instead had the character of Hades have his henchmen give Hercules a potion to turn him into a human being. But he had to drink every last drop of the potion and he missed the last little drop. And that is why he still retained the power of a god even though he was a human being. So they made it a little less controversial for children. <laughs> and also, um, they really wanted to incorporate Hades into the plot. So that gave them an excuse, a reason to have Hades be the villain uh, of the story. I mean, it does, it, a lot of the uh, elements do, are derived directly from Greek mythology, but Disney definitely took some liberties with it. <laughs> Yes, they did. And it makes it all the more touching. Instead of having Hercules be sort of this this outcast for societal taboos, being a, a bastard child, instead of that, he's sort of a fallen from grace character. He, he was a god, and he's lost that status. And now the rest of the, his journey is about regaining that status and proving that he belonged among them. And I think that just adds a whole lot more weight to the story as a whole. It's not about this guy trying to prove something that he ultimately isn't. He's not a demigod trying to prove he's a god. He's a fallen god, a fallen immortal right. trying to get back to that status. And I, I really like that that 
twist, that change in the story. What else about the story do you like here? Uh, I do enjoy uh, Meg's story art. I really, I, I find her character and her whole, you know, appearance in this film to be very interesting. At one point when they um, do a little exposition on um, Meg's backstory, you discover that the reason she's a prisoner of Hades is because she wanted to save the life of her the the man she loved so she get, she sold her soul to Hades to save his life but then he ended up leaving her for another woman <laughs> so she definitely is a woman who's been wronged and she's has some bitterness and resentment in her but then she learns to fall in love again because she falls in love with Hercules. I, I really, and, and she becomes a good person. She never really was a villain per se, but uh, due to circumstances, she kind of had no choice but to, to perform villainous acts being uh, Hades' uh, prisoner. So I enjoy that. And I also really enjoy Hades, but uh, we'll talk about characters in a minute. <laughs> yes, we will, for sure. The only other big thing about the story itself that I have to point out is just the humor of it all. The humor is charming. There, there's plenty of pop culture references, as there always are in Disney films, but they're just on a almost on a different level this time around. There's these culture references, there's these puns, such as in the training sequence with Phil, when Hercules and Phil and Pegasus are on the, the poles or the columns and they are doing the Karate Kid crane sequence. Or uh, when they first go to Thebes, Phil says, welcome to the Big Olive. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere, which is the big New York reference. The big there's, yeah. yeah, there's right before the, the Hydra scene when Hercules is rescu rescuing the two, uh, quote unquote, boys, Pain and Panic. And one of them says, disguise, somebody yeah. call IXII <laughs> instead of 911 because, hey, Roman numerals. Right. Um, and then right after that scene, uh, after Hercules has defeated the colossal Hydra and all of its many heads via destroying the cliff, Phil says, you won by a landslide. And it, it's just such a tongue-in-cheek, obvious joke. But it lands so perfectly with Danny DeVito's delivery. And there are so many moments like that throughout the entire film that yet I don't think the, the story itself is overly childish anyways. I think there's plenty here for adults to grab onto without that kind of uh, higher level humor. But yeah. that the presence of these these really clever references and puns just makes it even more accessible for an older audience. Right. In the spirit of Mel Brooks comedies, it's got a lot of it takes place in the past, but it's kind of like a a surreal past in that all the references are to modern day things. And hero worship was something people were thinking a lot about in the late 90s. And uh, I actually read that uh, when they were Thinking about uh, Hercules' popularity, they were comparing him to Michael Jordan. He was the Michael Jordan of his era. Um, he was a you know like a sports hero, um, and uh, they also were influenced by screwball comedy films such as those directed by Preston Sturgis and Frank Capra. And uh, the young Hercules was. Uh, inspired by Jimmy Stewart's character and Mr. Smith goes to Washington, believe it or not. And Meg is modeled after Barbara Stanwyck, who was kind of a sassy know-it-all broad in a lot of film noir um, movies from the late 40s and 50s, um, such as The Lady Eve and Meet John Doe. So they were inspired by a lot of classic Hollywood when it came to this film. And also pop culture of the 90s. They had like sandals that were Air Hercules referencing Air Jordan shoes. Instead of sneakers, they were sandals though because they didn't have... they. That's what people wore in, the, in, the, right. in Greek times were sandals. And they had a, a like a big gulp that was shaped like a, 
a Roman column, and it just like they were just kind of poking fun at the whole, you know, pop culture, um, and saying they were acquainting, you know, Hercules' popularity to the popularity of superstars of the '90s. So that was very interesting, and I, I, I love the, you know, the tongue-in-cheek modern-day references. It's really clever, a lot of fun. They kind of did that in Aladdin too with the genie especially so this is kind of a you know a progression of that idea for Disney yeah with Aladdin of course you had Robin Williams just sort of let loose in a recording studio so it's interesting that they went in that direction a little bit more purposefully in this one and I think it it fits Thebes very much was a sort of cultural center and so was New York and Hercules very much was a popular athlete and so was Michael Jordan. And you can see the the obvious parallels with sponsorships and with cheering fangirls and all these kind of things that remind you and make you reminisce to the, the popularity of stars then and even stars today. It's it's very tongue in cheek in that way. And I, I think they pull it off very well. It's a those, those are just they add to the fun of the movie. Uh, well, let's go ahead and start talking about characters. then. so first off on my list for some reason, is Hercules himself. So what do you have to say about Hercules? Um, You know, he was a means to an end in this film. Well drawn and, you know, what very well animated. I, I loved his look, but he was more of a plot device than anything else. His character wasn't that fully developed compared to some of the others in this film. But, it, it you know, there's no fault in that because that's his purpose, he moves the plot forward and he's not really meant to be, you know, as colorful as some of the other characters in this film. So it doesn't bother me that that he's like that. But um, compared to some of the other standouts in this, he's definitely not the most flamboyant of the characters. He's a little low key compared to the others. Right. He's he's definitely not as much of a standout as James Woods is Hades. But right. He. I think it's just as interesting a lot of times to find a character who doesn't change as much. So you look at Captain America and what's interesting about Captain America is that he holds true to his values. No matter what, he's always going to be Captain America, tried and true. This is what I believe in and I'm never going to waver. And that's sort of what Hercules is in this movie and Superman in that same sense. His talents, like Superman here, leave him as an outcast. He he can't reconcile his differences from others with his desire to fit in. And when he is given a, a goal to strive towards, this is who I am, and this is where I'm going to be. I'm going to do everything in my power to prove that that is who I am. And he goes on, he goes on, he, he gets fed up with the whole sponsorship of it all. He doesn't like the stardom. He, he wants to be with his, his parents. When he's confronted with the truth of Meg is the only time he really sort of falters in the film because she's the first truly great thing he's had going in his life. He's been an outcast. He, he's been on this journey. He's not been so successful so far in becoming a true hero. But there's this girl and he likes her a whole lot. And when he finds out about her involvement with Hades, he's in denial at first because, hey, why take this away from me? But then he reaches the point where he can't deny it anymore. She was definitely working for Hades, and he can't ignore that anymore. Right, right. And that betrayal demoralizes him, and it's painful to him to the point that he opts to straight up sacrifice himself rather than suffer another moment of heartbreak. It's not him jumping off a cliff and committing suicide. It's him almost doing the the equivalent of that, though, going into this this situation where he's unlikely to come out on the other side of it alive because uh-huh. he, he's just hurting so badly. But Phil comes back, he cheers him on, he gives him hope, he he bounces back, and then later in the film he's gotten his powers back, and the moment he's finally able to prove himself a true hero is at the moment he sacrifices himself for Meg's life. So it, it's this time it's not a careless sacrifice or an unmotivated sacrifice this this one is entirely motivated and entirely driven to rescue the woman he loves and that that's what makes it meaningful but what's cool is that's not the end of his arc 
yes, he's he's reached the ultimate goal that he set out on at the beginning of the film, but he learns and discovers within himself that that's not really what he wants anymore. He he shows that immortality is no longer his ultimate goal, and instead he he chooses to go back to the life he's always known. It's sort of like a, a you never know what you got till it's gone kind of situation where he he looks down as he's celebrating with the gods and sees that Meg isn't going to be able to live in Mount Olympus. She She's never going to be a god, but he can go back to the life he's always known and spend yeah. it with somebody he loves. And that is his whole arc is setting out on this journey, stumbling just a little bit, reaching his ultimate goal, and then realizing that's not what he wanted. And I, I think there's something to be said, and it's a pretty basic goal, but it, it touches the heartstrings no matter what. Right. Now, just to talk about Meg a little bit more, you, you talked about her a little bit earlier. Is there anything else you have to say about her? She's definitely a favorite. A lot of the Disney princesses, even though she's not a princess, she's kind of the princess type in this film. She's not the typical Disney um, heroine. She's more sassy. She's kind of, you know, she she doesn't have to depend on a man. She's got her own mind. And Disney had done some earlier characters like that, like probably Belle from Beauty and the Beast could be considered that too. But um, I think they went a little bit more beyond with Meg, and also she's a little more realistic than uh, Belle was. And she's she's got attitude, um, sarcasm. You know, she's constantly rolling her eyes, and she just she she's not overly excited by anything you know i mean all these amazing things happen right in front of her eyes and she's never that impressed by it <laughs> right i just like that i just find her to be you know fun you know she's probably fun at parties <laughs> <laughs> well as you said earlier she's she's cynical because she has had a pr pretty yes. rotten life she sacrifices herself essentially for this man she loves only to be abandoned for another woman. And that hurts. She's been hurt and she's wary of her affection for Hercules. Right. And the thing is, she's, we see that she's not only fearful for her feelings, but also for the well-being of Hercules and the danger of her being used against him. That's a, that's a slow progression. And it sort of, you see the culmination of that in, I won't say I'm in love where she's saying, Yes, I love him, but I'm not going to admit that to anybody because I'm not going to let myself get hurt like that. And what's cool about Meg is ultimately she provides the example for Hercules. When he has had his power stripped away, yes, he's just defeated the Cyclops, but he's about to get killed by this falling column. And she decides, I've got to save him. I've got to, I've got to push him out of the way. He and what he stands for is greater than anything I am. And I've spent this whole movie acting against him and trapping him and working for Hades. And so she, she sacrifices herself. She pushes him out of the way and is ultimately killed because of her injuries. And what's cool is that that's the example that Hercules has for doing the same thing. Just a couple short scenes later where he ultimately sacrifices himself, even though he comes out victorious and doesn't actually die. He, he, goes in with the intention of doing just that because he's just witnessed her doing the same for him. And, you know, people do crazy things for uh, being in love. So I, I like that she sort of flips the hero on his side. She's sort of an unexpected variable in his equation. Right. Now, what about Phil, Mr. Danny DeVito's character? Well, Phil basically just is Danny DeVito. I won't disagree with that, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like Danny DeVito, but I don't know if he's right for this film. I, I, I don't... It didn't bother me that much, but I would have liked to have seen somebody else in that role and take it in a different direction rather than have Danny DeVito be in the film, you know? Um, because basically it's not a character an original character that Disney created. It's just Danny DeVito animated, and there's nothing all that original or special about it. I think with the genie, Disney brought something original and special, and Robin Williams was a character. Even though he played himself in some regard, he also was 
playing a part. It didn't feel like it was Robin Williams. You were convinced that you were watching a genie, not Robin Williams. Whereas with Danny DeVito, I was never convinced that I was not watching Danny DeVito. It was just Danny DeVito in a little goat person's body. <laughs> he didn't ruin the film for me, obviously, because it's, like I said, my favorite Disney Renaissance film. Uh, so, I mean, and I do like Danny DeVito as a actor and a performer, but I just, for this particular film, I would have liked to have seen somebody else do that role. A lot of people auditioned for that part. Red Buttons, who played, um, who was in Pete, the original Pete's Dragon, auditioned for that part. And at the end of the audition, he turned to the casting directors and said, you're going to pick Danny DeVito, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> so um, not uh, a standout performance for me, but uh, at, I mean, it was good. It was it was OK and it didn't bother me as far as the film as a whole. How do you feel about him? Well, I won't argue that he is very much Danny DeVito animated, but more just the character himself, the the journey he goes on. At the beginning of the film, he's, like Meg, stubborn and cynical because he's experienced disappointment in the past. He's He's gone through all these people, all these heroes that he's trained, or heroes to be, or hero wannabes that he's trained and ultimately have failed. And he reveals that he had a dream at one point in time. He wanted he wanted the gods to put this this constellation in the sky of a hero and everybody would look up and say, Hey, that is Phil, that is Phil's boy. He had a part in making that person who he is and it's worth pointing out. He he wants recognition for his contributions. But he sets those aside and he says dreams are for chumps because he's been let set, he's been let down so many times. But throughout the course of the film, he grows and he, he starts putting his faith in Hercules because he really has something special. But eventually, you see, it's not for the, the chance of the fulfillment of his dream, but because he actually starts growing affection for Hercules. You know, he's been alone all these years. He's been spying after nymphs and <laughs> living by himself and just growing apart from everything. He hasn't had a meaningful relationship in a long time. And Hercules is the first instance of that coming into his life and he grows attached and it becomes not so much about his dream anymore, but Herc and reaching what Herc is aspiring. So seeing him go on that journey, but then still get rewarded by having his original dream fulfilled, even though he sort of let it go that that's so rewarding to me is seeing at the end of the film when the the muses are singing a star is born and we look up and Zeus is conjuring this constellation and we hear well first Phil's eyes brighten and then we hear that's Phil's boy just the way he said and it, it's an emotional moment because that is what Phil has been wanting for a very very long time and so watching his character yes Phil is very much probably the biggest element of comedic relief in this movie just because it is Danny DeVito but still he, his character does have a, a sort of a journey to go on and I like the payoff of that in the end well yeah I mean he's well written I mean what you like about him is the way he was written and I don't have any problem with that in fact every character in this was very well written and i wouldn't want to have the script changed at all or his journey or you know his his plot in this film but i i think that it would have been more effective that character you know would be more effective had somebody who isn't a caricature of themselves <laughs> portray that part you know somebody with good comedy chops but not somebody that can't really go out of their comfort zone as far as acting. Because Danny DeVito pretty much always plays the same part. <laughs> right. And I, I won't argue with that. But uh, then just moving on down the list, we have sort of the opposite of that, at least in your eyes, I'm assuming, because we have Hades, who is voiced by James Woods, and he is quite the character. So what do you have to say about James Woods as Hades and the character as presented in the film. Well, unlike Danny DeVito, James Woods was playing a character because 
that's not how you always that's not the way James Woods acts in every single movie that he's in. <laughs> so when he did Hades, he was he was channeling a performance. He wasn't just playing himself, you know what I mean? So that makes a big difference. And you don't think, oh, this is James Woods every time he opens his mouth, you know what I mean? But to me, he was probably the best character in the whole film. He was the standout for me, closely followed by Meg. But uh, yeah, he was the number one uh, character. He his he did a lot of ad libbing in this, and uh, to me, he's the comedy relief in this. He's comedy gold. The things he said, and I loved how he talked like a Hollywood agent, like "Let's do lunch" and those kind of quotes like that. Um, he's definitely channeling like Hollywood hoity-toity people, and I I love how is as uh, evil as he is and as mad as he gets, there's still something very charming and appealing about him. He's just a likable guy, even though he's a villain. Cleverly animated. I love how he's his hair is blue fire, and he like there's a few times where he you know has to light a match and it just comes right out of his fingers and. His stylization, um, very original and unique, and very original creation um, for Disney. It doesn't seem like they were influenced by anything they had done before. This was something completely new, a new portrayal of a villain for them. And kind of, in a way, more realistic than a lot of Disney villains, because... You know, in real life, people are bad, but there's always things that are that you can like about a person, no matter how bad they are. So I just feel he was so cleverly done and and uh, just loved every moment of his on film. A definite favorite for me. I think Hades was probably the biggest thing praised in this film across the board. Uh, even by Roger Ebert, which is funny because there's this one moment where uh, Hades in the film goes two thumbs way way up for our leading lady uh, and the the two thumbs yeah. up is a obvious Ebert and Siskel Siskel and Ebert reference from their TV show that that's their rating system yes so that that was a, a fun little reference and I, I think that it's apt that you pointed out that he very much talks sort of like a Hollywood exec and he's very much business 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 and fast talking gonna gonna weasel my way into this conversation and get out with what I want and leave you in the, the dust behind me kind of character. Uh, so he, he's a fun character. He, we, we like watching him. He's high energy. He's different. He's uh, got a lot of personality to him. But what's cool about him is that we also see the danger he poses. We see the threat he is to this world. And because of that, he's an effective villain and we, we sort of like to hate him. He, he's not like this. He's not a Dolores Umbridge in Harry Potter where it's just such a despicable character that we hate them naturally. This is a character who's fun to watch, who has evil intentions. And because of that combination, we like to sort of root against them because it, it's just a, a unique foil for our main character. The only other characters I had listed are sort of the smaller parts. So I don't have a whole lot to say about them. So just, Real quick, Pain and Panic, his his little demon henchmen sort of people. Uh, they're they're the other sort of primary comedy relief of the film, aside from Phil and from Pegasus. And what's cool about them is the the way they're able to transform, and they go from worms to snakes to children to woodland creatures to insects. Right. It's a it's a fun visual gag, just waiting to see what they're going to turn into next. And it's it's always very appropriate for the situation they're in. So when they turn into worms, they're they're saying we're just worms. We're we're so far beneath you. We're we're we belong in the the dust beneath your feet, Hades. And uh, the, the the bugs, when they turn into bugs, are sort of cowering in the, the shadows and scurrying around on the floor trying to avoid Hades. And so it's always a, an appropriate transformation to to fit the scene. And it, it, it's interesting to see what they're going to turn into next. Yeah, I, I enjoyed them. I, I thought they were well done. And again, Bobcat Goldthwaite. It was Bobcat Goldthwaite playing Bobcat Goldthwaite. <laughs> Just like Danny DeVito, it's pretty much you know what you're getting when, he, <laughs> when he's playing a part. But um, 
I enjoyed it. I, I, I mean, it sounds like I don't like those actors, but I actually enjoy both of them. I just, I don't know, I would have liked to have seen them go a little, le- rely a little less on the, the voices and more on the story and the characters, you know, but that's a personal preference. Some people would disagree with me, so who am I to say? <laughs> <laughs> and then we have Pegasus, who who's just this fun... Uh, trusty sidekick, loyal companion, but also has a whole lot of attitude and isn't afraid to show Hercules when he's upset with him or with Meg. Yeah, he was channeling Widowmaker from the Pecos Bill. If you've ever seen the 1948 Disney short from the um, package film Melody Time, the horse that was uh, Pecos Bill's horse was jealous of Slewfoot Sue, and it totally reminded me of of that when Pegasus was jealous of Meg. Definitely channeling Widowmaker. <laughs> I'll take your word for it because I haven't seen that one. Oh, you got to see that. Yeah, it's that's a fun, fun little reference. I'll have to see if I can find it. I'm sure it's on YouTube. the The last characters I have mentioned are Zeus and Hera, and then Amphitryon and. Alcmene, I think, is how it's pronounced. So his his full set of parents, Hercules' full set of parents, both uh, on Olympus and on Earth. And what I like about them, very similar to Superman again. Totally reminds me of Superman with his original parents in outer space and then his Earth parents. <laughs> Same exact plot. Yes, but th- they're parents who care for Hercules, and they, they want oh, him to absolutely. succeed. They want they want him to find where he belongs. And ultimately, what, what makes me most attracted to these parent figures is that they're non-selfish. In the same way Superman's parents are, they, they would certainly love for Hercules to say, I want to be with you. Whether it's Amphitryon and Alchemine saying, hey, stay with us here in the, the Greek countryside and you can have a happy life with us for the rest of your life. But they're they're willing to let him go and find out more about who he is. And then at the end of the film, when Hercules is up in a Mount Olympus, he's achieved that goal, but then he decides to leave that behind and to go back to Earth as a mortal. His parents don't don't throw a a, a hissy fit. They're they just look down with pride at the the man their son has become. And they they all allow Hercules to make the decision that is most true to his heart. And that is really what the film is all about. And so I, I like watching, I always like watching parent figures who are approving of their children's actions rather than becoming sort of pseudo antagonists about it. Right. I agree. Also, um, I would like to give a um, shout out to the three witches. I forget their names. But they had one eyeball between the three of them, and they had to share the eyeball. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's uh, Clotho, Lachesis, and Atropo. Oh, thank you. And um, what I liked about I loved the eyeball thing. I thought that was hysterical. And I also I loved how they were the ones who were the final decision that somebody was going to die. They pulled out a string, the I guess the string of life. And when that person's time was up, those three witches pulled out their scissor and they had to cut the string. And I just enjoyed that whole setup and the way it was animated. I thought it was clever. And then my other honorable mention would have to be the Hydra, which is uh, for 1997. This was an amazing piece of computer animation. Most of the film is, of course, 2D animation. But the Hydra was uh, done in a 3D animation. And what's fun about that character is how every time he would cut off their head, it would grow three more. (laughs) So eventually this thing had about 50 heads. And (laughs) it was pretty amazing how they animated it. I mean, you got to look at it through a lens of 1997 and not compare it to today's, what they can do today with computer animation. Because it does seem dated if you do that. But if you think 1997, this is pretty amazing what they achieved with that character. And uh, I I really enjoyed that scene. I thought it was very um, suspenseful. It had you on the edge of your seat. You didn't know where how it was going to end. And yeah, bravo to the Hydra. 
Yeah, it's it's a very cool <laughs> animated sequence, and I, I watched I purchased the Blu-ray to watch this movie again, and uh, man, it looks gorgeous in blue on Blu-ray high def. Yeah, uh, yeah. and that scene it may be a little bit dated, but I, I think it it looks great. Uh, it again, especially for 1997. Now, one disappointment I did have with the Blu-ray itself is that there's only really one special feature. Which kind of yeah. sucks. It's just that's been a trend with the Blu-rays. Like when you used to buy when it was DVD, they'd have a plethora of special features. But with the re-releases, Disney's been a little cheapy, cheapy on the special features. I don't. I'm not exactly sure why that is, but it's not. You'd think that with Blu-ray and you know they, it's more expensive, it's more high tech that they'd want to, you know, put all their best stuff in those packages but for some reason disney doesn't do that yeah i don't get i don't understand the stinginess but one thing that was cool about that short little 10 minute documentary is when they talk about the computer animation sequences and the the major one was definitely the hydra but then they sprinkled it in here and there throughout the rest of the film for like example on olympus instead of fully animating frame by frame the olympus scenes they would they would minimize those frames and then they would connect the frames together with computer animation giving olympus its otherworldly quality this this city built on a cloud visual trick right. and uh, that that's a really cool thing to to think about so yeah let's go ahead and move on to music so the music is the other thing that i think is the most talked about part of this film aside from James Woods is Hades. And it's because you have this incredibly different and 100% unique twist on the traditional chorus of Greek theater. In Greek theater, it, it was traditional to have a chorus of people who'd stand on the side and would give exposition and would, would help the story along. I mean, you, you even see Alan Menken using that technique in Little Shop of Horrors, where you have this, this trio of, uh, this trio chorus on the side telling the story. Right. Kind of channeling the um, Diana Ross and the Supremes. Right. And he continues that here. Um, you've got the Gospel Truth, which has a few reprises on the soundtrack. And that's sort of the exposition song. Is This, this is the song I'm going to use to tell you exactly what's happening. This is what happened in the past with the Titans and with Zeus and his rise to being Lord over all in a way. And then after Hercules has fallen, this is... This is the consequence of that. This is how Zeus and Hera reacted. And this is what Hercules has to set out on in life. And they do that a few times throughout the film where they use gospel truth to really just tell you exactly what's happening. Right. Kind of everyone, every time they need to kind of explain what's happening in the plot, they show up and do a reprise of that number. And when we say they, we're talking about the five muses, which are five lovely ladies that um, appear on all sorts of Grecian urns and statues and they're just kind of any type of art is where they appear they just they're able to move throughout any type of artwork that surrounds the characters which is very interesting and I love how they're animated and it's just very uh, magical and and fun they're a lot of fun to watch yeah, I don't remember exactly what song it is. I think it might be Zero to Hero, but there there's a clip that I've seen floating around online of it's a live action clip of five women dressed as the muses and they're performing. I think I think it's Zero to Hero. I'll look it up and I'll put it in the show notes once I find it. But it was a recording made for animation reference purposes, which is so cool. Yeah, Disney Disney's been doing that since, you know, the early since the 30s. They've been using live models to reference so that's nothing new, but it's definitely fun to watch when you first see it as animation. And then when you go back and say, oh, wow, that's where they got the ideas. It's it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's awesome. And then to continue and sort of conclude the talk on the muses, uh, you've got Zero to Hero and you've got A Star is Born, which are both just absolute earworms. And they're in the style of gospel music. And you think, God, what does gospel music have to do with Greek mythology? But for some reason, it works. It just, you know, it fits. It just, you don't even think about it. It just seems to connect somehow. And it gives the film this whole unique sort of energy that you wouldn't get if they had just done entirely traditional kind of music. I, I really right, appreciate right. that that new twist on things. 
the other standout song is definitely I Won't Say I'm In Love, Meg's song. That's a terrific song. I think that might be my favorite from this film. Yeah, watching the film last night, that was actually probably my favorite musical sequence to watch as well, just because you have it, what's well, a showcase for Meg. It's the only song she has, and it's it's very doo-wop this, this time around, uh, like yeah. 50s girl group again, but in a less of a gospel way and more of a doo-wop. And then you've got these tongue-in-cheek lyrics where she's talking about, again, at least out loud, I won't say I'm in love, but you you know through what you're seeing on screen that I, I'm definitely in love and I'm falling hard for this guy. And I love how the muses are her backup singers, but she doesn't see, every time she turns around, they freeze, so she can't, so she doesn't see them. I thought that was fun. It was clever. Agreed. And then um, the other big title song from this movie is Go the Distance. Mm -hmm. And it, it contains Hercules theme, which is this sort of uh, horn fanfare that you first hear with the title card and with the Olympus reveal at the beginning. And then you hear it again when baby Hercules throws the snake pain and panic off the mountain. And that same fanfare introduces Go the Distance when uh, young Hercules first sings it. And it's it's a perfect hero theme. It expresses his desire to find somewhere to belong and it grows into confidence and then it begins his hero's journey. And what's what's interesting about it is in the film, it's actually segmented into three and each of those segments sandwiches these, I don't want to call it exposition, but these story scenes that move everything along. So between the first and the second segment, you've got his earth parents revealing to him where he came from, or at least where they think he came from and what they found him with and that they found him to begin with. Uh, and then the, the second and third sandwich, another scene where he's speaking to giant Zeus statue and he finds out that's who he is. I am the son of Zeus. And with each of those, those story sequences, the, the song grows into something, something else. So the first segment is about, this is what I've always dreamed of. And then the next one is, okay, I've got somewhere to start. I'm going off here I go. And then the third one is, okay, now I know who I'm supposed to be and I'm off to prove it. And it, it's, it's a very cool progression for the song. The song grows as Hercules, the character grows. It the does. Song grows with him. Yes. And I, I love go the distance. Uh, it's one of my favorite Disney song or nineties, Disney songs, at least uh, just because it is the more traditional song of the film. And it's nice to have that contrast this time around. It, it's the standout because it's the one that's different. Everything else is very sort of city, like uh, One Last Hope. That that one has a very sort of urban setting to it. And ba -ba -bum -ba -dum -bum -ba -dum. and that's actually the theme that, that Mencken uses in the score for the cities. Yeah, very Broadway type number, you know, like a song and dance type number, One Last Hope. Go the Distance is often, that type of song is often referred to as the I Want song. And that was something that Disney started doing with The Little Mermaid, with the song um, Part of Your World. And then they kind of continued that through most of the Renaissance films. Every main character seemed to have one of those I Want songs. And this is definitely Hercules' uh, I Want number it's a terrific song. I don't find that there's any real duds in this film. I enjoy every song in this film. And it's got a lot of different styles. The music is all different genres. You've got the Broadway show tune number with Phil. And then you've got the doo-wop number with um, Meg. And then you've got the gospel with the muses. And then you've got this, you know, kind of sweeping traditional type love ballad type song with um go the distance you got that that ballad type number it also some of the um musical references in that song remind me of the movie um from the early 80s chariots of fire it's got kind of that olympic hero sound to it you know it's with the trumpets that play and that type of thing yeah, I, I hadn't made that connection before, but I can definitely hear that sort of at least the same sort of ideal as presented by Vangelis and his Chariots of Fire score, the same sort of sonic approaches to the music. Great score, great music, great score. And it, it's so different from, again, what Mencken has done in the past. This is hot off of Hunchback of Notre Dame, right. <laughs> which is 
what I consider to be Mencken's all-time best work. But it's fun to see him go from something so dramatic and so serious and so iconographic with its its messages in the music itself of Hunchback and Notre Dame and go into something that's a lot more lighthearted here, but still has a whole lot of variety and showcase of Mencken's ability. Right. And it definitely has some of that little shop of horrors feel to it, too. It does. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, let's move on to our final discussion section. Let's talk about the the themes of the film, what we sort of take away. So what do you got to start with? Definitely the main theme of this film is selflessness, giving of oneself to, to save someone else. I think that's the main takeaway from the film. It's not about you is basically what it is. Another theme is pop culture. And um, another theme is um, life and death. (laughs) There's all different types of themes going on that have not very much to do with each other. But it's more of a comedy. It's It's not really meant to be taken as seriously as a film such as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which definitely has more of a moral to it than this does. I mean, it does have the moral, which I just mentioned, but it's more about enjoying the ride on this one and the fun of the experience than it is to take away a lesson from it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But that being said, you you talked about the idea of it not being about you. And that falls into what I said, the, the meaning of hero and what it takes to become one. And it, it's definitely about putting yourself aside uh, there's the quote, a true hero isn't measured by the size of his strength, but by the strength of his heart. You know, Hercules thinks that if he does heroic things, then he will rejoin the immortals. But it's not about defeating monsters or garnering fame. It's about sacrifice. He sees Meg sacrifice herself for him, and he understands then that true heroism is sacrifice for the ones you love. So he echoes her sacrifice in his own. Then you've also got sort of in tandem. I've got both the idea of where you belong about it. It's where the people you love are, where your heart lies and then chasing your dreams. I talked earlier about Phil, you know, Phil has chased his dreams for years to, to no avail. He decides that dreams are for chumps and, you know, he's been alone for many years. He's grown bitter with distance and with age. And it takes his training of Hercules and the development of genuine affection for Herc who's chasing his dreams for Phil to realize that his dreams do have merit. And because of that, he, he succeeds in the end. It, it's sort of about taking more optimistic approach to life, I suppose, is that if you have dreams, you should chase after them, whether you think you're going to achieve them or not. There's no reason to not go for it because, hey, you might just be successful in the end. And Hercules chases his dreams from the opening. And what's cool about Hercules, again, is that his dream changes once he achieves the original one. And he says, you know, this isn't what I want. This isn't what my journey has been about. My journey has been about finding companionship and finding someone here on earth with whom I belong. And uh, your dreams follow your heart. So anything to add to that? You pretty much said it all. I stand corrected. I didn't even think about some of those themes. (laughs) So you did a good, you, you, you were able to dig a little deeper than me. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) Well, cool. Um, (laughs) Any final thoughts about the movie itself? Well, I just want to mention that um, when I was living in California, I had an annual pass to Disneyland, and they actually had a Hercules parade, and it was amazing. And So this movie kind of stays in my mind be- more because of that parade. It kind of struck a chord with me at the time, and so it has a lot of fond memories for me, and Oh, interesting, too, is that uh, when they premiered this film, it actually had a premiere in New York City, and they moved the entire Main Street Electrical Parade from California to New York, and it went down Broadway, the Main Street Electrical Parade, and they built a special float just for Hercules at the very end of the parade, and then after the parade... They had uh, the world premiere of 
the film Hercules, which is kind of a huge gala premiere for this film that kind of did okay at the box office. <laughs> it kind of didn't uh, meet the expectations of the Disney company. But, uh, you know, compared to some of the other films from that era, like The Lion King and The Little Mermaid, and it did okay. I mean, they made back what they put into it, and then some, but it wasn't a blockbuster hit like some of the other films from that era, which is a shame because, to me, this is the best. <laughs> yeah, it's unfortunate. I'm looking at the box office stuff right now, and... Batman and Robin, the Joel Schumacher, <laughs> I, I would say Abomination if it wasn't such a fun movie. Don't get me wrong. It's a bad movie, but I love it. <laughs> uh, but that movie came out just a week previous to Hercules. And then a week prior to Hercules, you had Men in Black coming out, the original with oh, Will Smith and Tommy Lee go. Jones. So, I mean, it was sandwiched by two very popular films. And unfortunately, because this film was more about fun and wasn't as classic a story as something like Beauty and the Beast or Little Mermaid or something along those lines. Uh, it, it did struggle a little bit more in the box office, but it lives on and I hold it dear to my heart and it, it will always be very special to me because of it being the very first movie I remember seeing in theaters. So that's what I hold on to and just how much fun I have while watching and it's a good lesson in sort of the hero's journey as well. It's very Star Wars-esque in its approach to uh, following its main character and having a mentor and having a villain and having sidekicks. And it, it follows everything in a great way, but it, again, brings its own twist. Yeah, Phil definitely is uh, like the Yoda character in this film. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but one last thing I'd like to say is that uh, the villain Hades has become very very popular in the disney parks in the last few years and he's actually featured at all of the special disney halloween events and they often use him as the master of ceremonies for different special stage shows that they do and uh he's also featured heavily in a um disney cruise show that they perform for, you know, passengers on the Disney Cruise Lines called Villains Tonight. He plays the host of Villains Tonight. So that character has definitely developed a sort of cult following in recent years among Disney fandom, which is kind of interesting, but not surprising. No, I can definitely see how that would work for a character like this, where somebody to step in and be this, this quick-talking, very... Uh pop culture reference heavy kind of character a good way for somebody to test their sort of stand-up comedy chops and acting chops almost at the same time definitely excellent i think that concludes the official 48th episode of cinescope thank you chris for joining me today oh you're welcome it was a lot of fun to talk about hercules it was and uh i'll give you a chance to plug your stuff here again in just a second contact for Cinescope, you can find us on facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast and at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Again, if you're interested in winning movies and helping the show to get a little bit more recognition, please go to iTunes, rate, review, subscribe if you feel so inclined. And if you don't want to use iTunes to enter the contest, you can do that on social media by sharing and tagging us. If you have feedback or ideas, you can email me at thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And you can also use that contact if you're interested in co-hosting. If you have a movie that you love that you think you can talk about for a little while, I'd love to have you on. So one month left of the giveaway. Don't forget. Now, Chris, where can people find you online? Well, sit down, everybody. It'll take a minute. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at DisneyChris73. Facebook, I'm Chris Linden. That's L-Y-N-D-O-N as in Linden Johnson. And my website is DisneyChris.com. My podcast is Jiminy Crickets with an exclamation point. And we're on iTunes. And also, I just started kind of concentrating a little more than I have been on my YouTube channel. And I've been posting a, a new video every week on my YouTube channel. And my YouTube is DisneyChris.com. 
and that's spelled out D-O-T-C-O-M. So be sure to check out my weekly video on YouTube. Awesome. And that will all be in the show notes for you to see everything comprehensively put together. The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And once again, all the show notes, all of the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all for this week. Thank you, Chris. It's been awesome having you back to talk about one of my favorite classic Disney movies. Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 48. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 49. Have fun and celebrate movies. The best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter and on Facebook.com slash. Oh, hold on. I didn't spell it like I normally do. 